as noted earlier, um, I think we made you aware that I've been sick this week and for, for many weeks now on and off. And so we're actually going to do what we did when we were supposed to cover 15-22 uh, through 17-7. Uh, that was supposed to be one sermon. It ended up two uh, because I was not well that morning. Uh, we're going to do the same thing this morning. And so your outline there has three parts to it. We're only actually going to cover the first part because I'm not confident in my ability to, to get through the sermon without having a coughing fit of some type. Now, if you're thinking that means we get to go to lunch early, uh, it does not. The original sermon was about two hours. And so... <laughs> <clears throat> at any rate, uh, since I've been drinking a lot of tea recently, you can think of the whole sermon, all of chapter 18, as kind of one pot, and, and we're just taking a, a cup out of that pot this morning and putting some honey and sugar in it and, and learning uh, what is there for us. We're going to enjoy uh, what God has for us in this text. So let's get started together. <clears throat> in her excellent memoir, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, former Lesbian literary critic, LGBT activist, and tenured professor at Syracuse University, Rosaria Champagne Butterfield, reflects on her conversion to Christianity writing. I did not perceive conversion to be a blessing. It was a train wreck. Conversion put me in a complicated and comprehensive chaos. I, I sometimes wonder when I hear other Christians pray for the salvation of the lost if they realize that, the compre that this comprehensive chaos is the desired end of such prayers. Often people ask me to describe the lessons that I learned. I can't. It was too traumatic. Sometimes in crisis, we don't really learn lessons. Sometimes the result is simpler and more profound. Sometimes our character is simply transformed. This was my conversion in a nutshell. I lost everything but the dog. Miss Butterfield was in no way searching for the Lord when he found her. She felt no great void or desire to change herself. In fact, she was quite happy, quite successful. In fact, she was working on a book about the rise of the religious right in America. And the quote, hermeneutic of hatred that the religious right uses against their favorite target, queers. Or at the time, people like me. Indeed, Rosaria's conversion was unlikely. Until one day, she was surprised by grace. A letter from a pastor turned into a dinner with his family, turned into entering into community with his church. And before she knew it, Rosaria found herself in a comprehensive chaos, converted to Christianity. This morning we have before us in Exodus 18 the story of another unlikely convert, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, who just so happens to be the priest of another religion, a non-Israelite. As the narrative unfolds, we will see Jethro convert, participate, and depart in response to the truth that he confesses in verse 11, which is this, Yahweh is greater than all gods. That's the theological point of the text. And it works in conjunction with our main idea this morning, which is this. I think what we can learn from this chapter is that God rescues and uses unlikely converts. In Exodus, God has shown his incredible saving ability, his incredible power, by rescuing Israel out from under the hands of the Egyptians. He's going to show us his power and his greatness 
by rescuing Jethro out of a false religion. And in our own lives, he's proven his power and his worth by saving us out of the death we deserve. And so this morning we will consider just the first 11 verses here up to Jethro's confession of faith. As we do so, or before we do so, let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask for your help in this time. Pray that you would help us to set ourselves underneath of this text, underneath of your word. Pray that you would uh, come to us and meet us in this time. That you would fill some of us with your Holy Spirit afresh and others of us, that you would take hold of our hearts and our lives for the very first time. Father, we thank you that you are a God that is in the converting business. We pray for that fruit in our families, in our community. Lord, help us to continue to see your works and your power. Help us continue to see your miracles as you bring all the nations to yourself. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start with verse 1 in chapter 18. Moses' father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, heard about everything that God had done for Moses and his people, Israel, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken in Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back along with her two sons, one of whom was named, man, I learned how to pronounce these names, but I forget, so excuse me if I butcher them, all right? Gershom, because Moses had said, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land, and the other, Eliezer, because he had said, the God of my father was my helper and delivered me from Pharaoh's sword. Uh, Moses actually names his sons, and the names for his sons actually reflect or summarize his own life and Israel's life, right? Foreigners in a foreign land, and the Lord was their help, and he delivered them out of their slavery, out of their hardship. Back to verse 5. Moses' father-in-law Jethro, along with Moses' wife and sons, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped at the mountain of God. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, and then kissed him. They asked each other how they had been and went into the tent. We have in the first seven verses here, some have called a picture of a family reunion. Though it's, it's not one that we quite expected, right? As readers of Exodus, we were not privy to the information that Moses had sent his family to stay with Grandpa, right? But apparently they had at some point. Uh, People have speculated that perhaps this happened after in chapter 4. You remember God wants to kill Moses and Sephora steps in and covers him with the blood of the sun and saves his life. And so some have said it was at that point he realized it was too dangerous. And so he sent her and her sons back to stay with Jethro. Others have said it was at some time prior to the plagues in Egypt, during the plagues in Egypt, and even uh, one commentator said after the plagues in Egypt, after they had come into the wilderness, that Moses sent his family to stay with Jethro and that they had all planned to meet back at this mountain. The truth is nobody really knows when or why Moses' family was sent away, but they were, and now we find that Jethro is bringing them back. And we might ask the question, why now? And I think that question is answered in verse 1. Because Jethro has heard about everything that God had done for Moses and the people of Israel. The news about the Exodus is on the front page of newspapers, right? It's at the top of their Facebook feed. It's it's trending on Twitter. 
It's big news. The headline might read, Adopted Son of Egypt Returns to Lead Son of Yahweh Out of Egypt. Actually, the headline was probably more, What on Earth Happened in Egypt? How did these Hebrew slaves overcome the greatest superpower in the world at the time? They didn't have any military prowess or chariots. And yet, they had come out of Egypt and conquered the mighty Egyptians. Not they, but their God. We're told in Exodus that this is so the whole world will know that he alone is God. Bottom line uh, at this point is that there is a buzz in the ancient world and it comes into Jethro's ears. He's heard about God's incredible rescue of the Israelites. And so he goes to Moses in the wilderness at the uh, mountain of God. This is Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. This is a place where Moses used to tend sheep where the, the burning bush showed up. If you remember, they say he's living in his father-in-law's basement. He's tending sheep. Uh, burning bush shows up that one day, calls him to do what he's supposed to do. It's before the days of the, the propane, like fake logs that don't really burn up. And so it was really awesome. That, that's where this happened. They're at the same place. And Stuart actually suggests that Moses has prearranged this meeting and this family reunion with his father-in-law beforehand. Like when he sent his family away to live with them, he said, hey, we're going to meet back up at this mountain after we come out. And I, I don't know if that's true or not. It very well could be. But they're returning. They're coming to meet Moses. And what is peculiar to me at this point, this family reunion, he hasn't seen his wife and his kids, is that the focus of the story isn't on Moses' wife and kids. In fact, they're only going to show up in genealogies the rest of the way. The focus of the narrative is on Jethro and on the interaction between Jethro and Moses. And because we're good readers, we want to ask that wonderful question that my two-year-old cannot stop asking recently, which is, why? Driving me crazy. Somebody's like, I got an amen coming back at you. Why? Why is the author spotlighting Moses' father-in-law? I think it's because Jethro is the priest of Midian. And he is about to make a confession of faith in the one true God of Israel. And this is going to be in contrast to the Egyptians and the Amalekites. The Egyptians and the Amalekites, they see all of these things, but they do not believe. They don't get it. Jethro hears of these things, and he comes to Moses, and as Moses explains them to him, eventually he has this confession of faith. He learns the lesson of Exodus. The Lord is greater than all gods. That's the lesson. However, he's not confessing just yet. At this point, he has heard about God, but he's still the priest of Midian. I think of him as a skeptic in my sanctified imagination. That he's heard about these things, but he's not sure what to make of them. And so he's going to somebody he trusts, somebody that he's known for 40 plus years. He's going to meet Moses. He's going to ask him, what does all of this mean? So we read in verse 8. Moses recounted to his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had confronted them on the way, and how the Lord delivered them. Jethro rejoiced over all the good things the Lord had done for Israel when he rescued them from the power of the Egyptians. Praise the Lord, Jethro exclaimed, who rescued you from Pharaoh and the power of the Egyptians and snatched the people from the power of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods because he did wonders when the Egyptians acted arrogantly against Israel. 
Admittedly, uh, verse 11 sounds a little bit awkward. Uh, I like Stuart paraphrased it so I could understand it a little bit better, so I'll share it with you. Uh, it puts these words in Jethro's mouth in, in form of a paraphrase. So everything has happened just as God planned it. He even controlled the Egyptians' gods in their arrogance against Israel and humiliated them to show his greatness. God in humiliating the gods of Egypt through the plagues and showing his supremacy above all others has brought Jethro into Moses to hear about these things. And Jethro hears and he believes. And that's the point. Jethro hears and believes. He enters the tent a skeptic and a polytheist, but he exits it a believer. Until verse 11, it seems, writes Riken, that Jethro had assumed the God of Israel was only a tribal deity, like the rest of the gods he worshipped. He had not yet come to believe in the one and only true God, who provides the one and only true way of salvation. He was like many people today who think that all religions are more or less equal. You've probably heard uh, the, the parable about the blind men and the elephant, right? You've probably heard how that one goes. Like, There's a bunch of blind guys. One guy grabs the elephant's trunk and says, uh, well, uh, this animal, because he doesn't know it's an elephant, is like a snake. Another one comes and, uh, to the back of the elephant, grabs the tail, and says, well, uh, this animal is, is like a rope. Another grabs the, the, the big leg of an elephant. I don't know how you do that, but you grab the, the leg of an elephant and says, God, or, um, the elephant is like a tree. An elephant must be a tree. Another puts his hands on the sides of the elephant and says, an elephant is like a wall. You've heard this parable, I'm sure. And then what will happen in, in our culture is that contemporary folks will apply this to uh, world religions, right? And they'll say, see, all, all the religious people have a part of the truth. But really, it's all the same thing. In the end, all paths end at the same place. Say something akin to, uh, everyone has part of the truth about God, and they, they worship God in their own way. But ultimately, what matters is the sincerity of your belief. You'll end up in the same place. God will accept it. Uh, This thought and this parable should be rejected for a myriad of reasons. Uh, I'm going to try to share a few. First, uh, the parable assumes omniscience, so it's kind of self-defeating, right? The person who tells the parable knows that the elephant's an elephant. That's not really fair in this scenario. So they have some kind of truth that they're making everybody else privy to, so it fails in that regard. Secondly, sincerity of belief doesn't authenticate the belief. Does that make sense? Right? So for, I don't know, past 10 years or so, or since I was in college, every year I have believed that my West Virginia University Mountaineers are going to win the national championship in football. I believed it with my whole heart. Sincerely. Not happening. Maybe this year, I don't know. That's how I keep myself going in my fandom. Every summer I convince myself I'll do good, and then a couple games in, reality sets in. Maybe I sincerely believe I can fly. It doesn't matter how seriously I believe that. It's not true. See, sincerity does not make a belief correct. If you sincerely believe a lie, all it does is make you seriously wrong. Thirdly, we cannot just worship any God in any way that we want and inherit eternal life. God sent his one and only Son into the world to be the one and only Savior. 
concerning Jesus, the scripture says, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Only Jesus makes salvation possible. Only Jesus can rescue men and women from the penalty we've earned by our sinning. We sin because we're sinners. Furthermore, God cares about how we worship him. I mean, worship of God, in a very minimal sense, is at least obedience to his commandments. You can't worship him in a way that's contrary to his character. You know what happens in the Bible when people try to worship God in whatever way they want? Things go very, very badly, right? Uh, Consider Leviticus 10. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his own fire pan, put fire in it, placed incense on it, and presented unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them to do. Here's verse 2. Then fire came from the Lord and burned them to death before the Lord. They died. He killed them. They said, we're going to worship God in this way. God hasn't authorized himself to be worshipped in that way. And so he kills them. That's the penalty for trying to approach a holy God in an unholy manner. One also thinks of Acts 5 when Ananias and Sapphira, they come before uh, the church and they lie about how much money they've, they've been giving. Say, yeah, we're giving it all. And they've actually kept a portion back from themselves. And, and Ananias goes in first and then uh, he's called out on his lying and he's struck dead. Some dudes come and they bury him. And then his wife comes in after him. Same question. Peter asks her same question. She lies and she says, hey, look, those guys just got back from burying your husband and they're going to bury you too. And she falls down dead. I always feel bad for the guys that are doing the burying in that story. It's hard work. I worked in a a, uh, graveyard for a summer, and it takes time to to dig graves. They go out, dig one, they get back, and they say, all right, dig another one. The point I'm making is that God cares about how he is worshipped. Is sin to worship God according to our desires rather than his? It is always sin to listen to your heart rather than the voice of God. We need to learn the lesson of Jethro, which is that we cannot serve counterfeit gods. We can't even serve ourselves, and we set ourselves up as God. But that there is one God who is worthy of worship and praise, and one alone. Jethro's conversion was an unlikely one, but I don't think anyone's conversion is likely. We are all dead in our sins, hopelessly separated from God until his grace rescues us, makes us alive together with Christ. Friends, our God is a God who converts. Many examples of this throughout history. Uh, One of my favorites is uh, the story of C.S. Lewis. Uh, If you know, Lewis was a stalwart atheist, but God used his friendship with J.R.R. Tolkien and others to save him. And the story goes that uh, on a night in 1931, Tolkien and Hugo Dyson shared a meal with Lewis, and they began talking, as they often do. And the subject of conversation was myth and its relation to the truth. Lewis said it lasted half the night. And he would later recount in a letter, as he reflected on the conversation, what Dyson and Tolkien showed me was that the idea of a dying and reviving God moved me, provided I met it anywhere else except in the Gospels. Now the story of Christ 
is simply a true myth, a myth working on us in the same way as the others, with this tremendous difference. This is one of my favorite lines in all of Lewis, that it really happened. Strikes me is that Lewis wasn't actually converted that night through that conversation, but later on when he was on his way to the zoo, he was actually in the sidecar of his brother's motorcycle. I don't know who rides in a sidecar anymore. Um, pretty lame. <laughs> I don't know that it's really cool or tough. But he's in the sidecar of his brother's motorcycle. He's thinking about these things. And he becomes a Christian. In his own words, he summarizes it this way. When I set out, I did not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. When we reached the zoo, I did. God can breathe eternal life into the lungs of anyone, anytime, anywhere. I mean, think of the miraculous nature of your own conversions. Friends, it is a miracle whether you came to Christ as a child and you can't remember a day that you didn't know Jesus. That's as miraculous as the person who has been uh, an alcoholic their whole life, whom God saves out of that addiction. He's in the saving business. That, those conversion stories are both miracles. It is a miracle that you are converted you who are dead. Dead people don't do anything. It's very unlikely that you would end up in a loving relationship with a holy God. You, like Jethro, like Rosaria, like me, are an unlikely convert. And God is still in the unlikely conversion business. He still has the power to bring life from death Friend, if you're here and you do not know Jesus, pray that he would flood your veins with the lifeblood of the Holy Spirit. Pray that he would cause your heart to beat in rhythm with the gospel instead of flatlining with the world. Hear this news. Jesus died for you. Christian, I wonder, are you praying for the lost? How many, how many new brothers and sisters in Christ would, would we have if every one of your prayers this week had been answered with a yes? James is right about us when he says, you have not because you ask not. Church, if we want to see God build his kingdom, if we want him to use us in that great task, we must ask him to give us opportunities to share the gospel we must ask him to create faith in those we share the gospel with. He is the one who gives faith. He is the one who gives fruit. We must ask him. Faith comes from hearing. I mean, this is how everyone is converted. God gives the opportunity to his people to share his word, and then he saves those who hear and believe. I mean, look at how Jethro is converted here. Love verse 8, Moses recounted to his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had confronted them on the way and how the Lord delivered them. It's simple. Moses tells Jethro about his hardships and about what God has done. 
And I think the hardships part of this is really important. Sometimes as Christians, we're uh, tempted to give people just the good news without the bad news. But in order to give them the whole gospel, we need to tell them the truth about sin and give them the good news. And we don't want to give them a a fluffy, uh, cotton candy version of the good news. Yes, Jesus saves you into eternal life. But guess what? That doesn't mean everything is going to be perfect right now and right, right in this moment, the rest of your life. No. Trouble comes among those who follow Jesus. I mean, we have to avoid this cotton candy theology that is espoused by so many false teachers. Following Jesus does not result in health, wealth, and prosperity. Not now, but in the age to come when Christ returns. Following Jesus in the here and now often means suffering. I mean, at a very minimum, at a bare minimum, it means dying to yourself. Following Jesus brings hardship. In fact, it it usually means, as it did for Rosaria, losing everything but the dog. We must tell the whole of the gospel. We must tell the story of how God saved us from death and brought us into life. And in the hardships of life has met us there and continued to prove his ability to deliver us from all things, his ability to do everything for our good and for his glory. Moses tells Jethro the whole story, and Jethro hears and believes. I mean, faith comes from hearing. It really is that simple. And Christian, you, like Moses, have a story to tell about how God rescued you from death, and gave you life, how God became a man, lived the life you should have lived, died the death you should have died, and rose from the grave so that you can know that if you are united to him by faith, you also shall rise. I mean, you have a story. Are you telling it? Let's look at four more things we can learn from Jethro's conversion first. Family evangelism can and does work. Don't give up. Right? I bet almost, if not all of us, can think of a family member who does not yet know Jesus. And I'm betting most of, if not all of us, have chickened out when we've had the opportunities to share Jesus with that particular family member because we thought it would be awkward or we wanted to keep the peace or whatever. But the truth is, God uses awkward conversations all the time. We mustn't let these opportunities pass us by. Brothers and sisters, your next opportunity to share the gospel with your family may be your last. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Resolve that no one in your family would ever be able to cry out to you from a Christless eternity. Why didn't you tell me? Tell them. Second, notice that Jethro is old when he is converted. It is never too late for someone to come to faith. Keep praying for that friend, that brother, mother, sister, father, daughter, cousin, grandparent, grandchild. There is still hope. You guys remember when we studied Mark 4, we learned that evangelism is a lot like farming our job to scatter the seed but it's God who gives the growth 
We get to scatter and sleep, pray and wait. It's God who brings the result. So keep sowing the seed. Keep praying. Keep waiting. Love is patient. God will be faithful. It is he who gives the growth. Do not grow weary in doing good. Thirdly, I think that relationship in evangelism is important. Caveat here. Yes, people do come to faith uh, sometimes in the first time meeting without relationship. You hear all kinds of stories of people exchanging the gospel with strangers and the strangers being miraculously saved by God. It happens. I listened to a sermon recently uh, that recounted the conversion of of John Bunyan, who had just apparently, I think it was yours, actually. Uh, You can correct me if I'm wrong later. (laughs) A little pressure now. But uh, where he had heard a bunch of ladies at lunch gossiping the gospel, speaking of spiritual things, and all of a sudden it turned up within him, it turned up within him this knowledge that he didn't have eternal life and played a large part in his coming to Jesus. Yes, God does those things. That's my caveat. But I think the best pattern is relationship with people. I think it's invaluable when we are uh, sharing the life-changing news of the gospel. It's important to build relational capital. It's important to um, show people that we love them so that they'll hear us when we, and hear what we have to say when we speak to them. Right? Moses has built a relationship with his father-in-law for 40-plus years. They love and respect one another. And I think it's this relationship that enables Moses to share with Jethro. All that to say, as I belabor the point, build relationships with people. Love them. Earn the right to speak truth into their lives. Lastly, and I think this is actually kind of one of the centerpieces of this text, we learn that God loves the nations, right? Jethro is not an Israelite. From the beginning, God had in his mind to bless all the nations with himself. God resolved from the beginning, from the fall, to rescue all who would trust in him. We see in the conversion of Jethro that God's reach, even at this stage in Israel's infancy, is broader than simply saving Israel. He longs to bring the nations to himself. Peter ends comments, God's news is for all who acknowledge him. Through the fall of our first parents, the world was subjected to frustration, and it is nothing less than the world that God has come to redeem. In the Old Testament, this began to be accomplished through the chosen people, the children of Abraham. In the New Testament, this purpose is fully accomplished through the chosen son, Jesus Christ in whom God is preparing Abraham's spiritual children, those who have faith. And most of us can really appreciate this. I don't know that any of us in this room are Jewish. We can appreciate that God loves the nations and that he's grafted them into his people. Friends, we have been adopted as sons of Abraham and we enjoy the blessings promised to Abraham because they've been procured for us by Christ. One of my favorite uh, verses in the New Testament is in, or I guess, section, is uh, Galatians 3, 6 through 9. It says this, Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness, then understand that those who have faith are Abraham's sons. If you have faith, you are a son of Abraham, a son of God, part of God's chosen people. 
Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and told the good news ahead of time to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. The blessing of forever, never stopping, heart skipping love and life together with God. Life together with God and his people is for everyone, for all the nations, for all who have faith. And this faith must be in Jesus Christ alone, who is the unlikeliest of saviors. Who would have ever dreamed that the creator king of the cosmos would take off his crown in order to take on flesh? Who would ever envision God the Son living a life fully dependent on God the Holy Spirit and fully pleasing to God the Father? Who would have ever imagined Jesus giving himself to be crushed under the weight of the holy wrath of God on the cross? Who would have ever hoped that after three days, He would rise from the dead to give life to the dead. Who would believe that he would do all this according to his divine foreknowledge, according to his plan? Who would believe that he did this so that he could end evil without ending us? Who would believe that he would do this because he loved us?